as we begin this morning, I would like to read as part of the beginning of our prayer from Psalm 122, verses 6 to 8. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. Father, we're thankful that true shalom, true peace, is brought, has been brought to this earth by Jesus Christ as he has come to bring peace to our hearts and peace to the world. And one day he will be acknowledged as the Prince of Peace. And yet, Lord, we live in a world torn and we do want to remember Jerusalem, the city of our King, that you will somehow cut through the hatred and the centuries of conflict and bring peace. We know, Lord, it is only you can do that because the hatreds are so deep and the unwillingness to cooperate is so strong. But Lord, we pray that you will at the same time bring constant peace to our hearts, even in the midst of the trials and the tribulations that we face each day, whether it be physical or financial or emotional or at work or within the family, whatever it is, Lord, we, we face these issues. And yet, Lord, we know we can have peace in the midst of it all and that we can be sharers of peace, that we can be lighthouses of peace. Pray that this will be true. Lord, we ask that you will be here this morning and guiding our thoughts, our, the focus of our hearts. We ask that your word will speak to us in the depth of our being. And Lord, we will acknowledge the truth, not just intellectually, but in the very heart of our souls. And Lord, as the word is proclaimed, this morning uh, in the service and in other classes. We trust you to anoint and empower and to bring about the changes in lives that you are intending. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will turn to the fifth chapter of First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 5, and I'd like to begin reading at verse 6. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of God around, of Israel around. And it came about that after it had, they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with very great confusion. And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it happened as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Again, just to remind ourselves, briefly before, there had been a war between Israel and Philistia. The war had been fought uh, between Ebenezer and Aphek, two towns 
on the edge of the uh, hill country and, well, the Shephelah and the, the coastal plain, about centrally located in Israel. And as a result of the uh, battle that was fought, Israel lost the ark. They had foolishly taken the ark from Shiloh, bringing it out onto the battlefield, thinking that it would act as a good luck charm, as a talisman, and would enable Israel to win the battle. But instead, Israel lost the battle with a loss of 30,000 men, and the ark was captured by the Philistines. The Philistines took the ark down to one of their cities, Ashdod, which was about 30 miles south of where the battle was fought, just on the coast there, a, a great commercial center, as I mentioned to you last time. And so, as we read this, uh, read this passage this morning, we're looking about at, at what happened in Ashdod and then what later happens in Gath and Ekron, two of the other cities of Philistia. In the days and the weeks, and, and exactly the passage of time we don't understand, we know a little bit later as we get into the sixth chapter that the total period of time was seven months that the Philistines had possession of the ark. But how many days was it at Ashdod? How soon did they wake up and finally ship it off to Gath? We don't know. But we know that it was in the days following the arrival of the ark that in Ashdod that God demonstrated that not only could he destroy the, the idol of Dagon, because remember we mentioned to you, or we read last time in the first part of this chapter, that they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of their god Dagon. And as I mentioned, um, this was back when we were studying the book of Judges, when there was a reference to the Philistines and Dagon, that Dagon, the scholars are still not completely convinced exactly who Dagon was. They know he was an image of either a grain god or a fish god. And, and they argue back and forth because of the word Dagon and, and its root meaning. But apparently we had a, a god standing like this, uh, I guess a suppose in blessing, and the ark was brought in as a trophy of the victory that the Philistines had over Israel and, and hence over Yahweh. And the Ark of the Covenant was brought in there, and the next day when they came, they found that Dagon was on his face. And so they set him back up, you remember, and then the following day they found him not only in his face, but his, his hands and his head had broken off as it fell on the threshold between two rooms in the temple there. So God was demonstrating now through the events that we read about in this passage that not only could he break the hands and the head off of Dagon, not only could he cause Dagon to be shattered, but he could destroy Dagon worshipers just as easily and just as well. I think it was not without purpose that God broke the hands off from Dagon because Dagon being handless was obviously not able to do anything, not that he ever could do anything anyway, but not even symbolically because in this passage if you read that the hand of God was heavy upon the Ashdodites. You know, I, there's no accident there, I think between the wording, the hand of God and the broken hands of Dagon. A powerful picture of the almighty God and gods who are not gods whatsoever at all. What's interesting is that the word heavy, as it's used in this passage, means, as we might assume, oppressive. It, it means severe. God's hand was severely upon the Ashdodites. And when I was looking up that word, it was very interesting that David uses this word in a, in a context in Psalm 32. And let me just read a, a brief passage there from the 32nd Psalm where David uses this same word, heavy. David says in Psalm 
32, beginning at verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, now notice the contrast. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, thy hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me, and my vitality drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Unconfessed sin causes one's body just to be desiccated, you know, so to speak, like exposed to the full summer heat without any refreshment at all. And the contrast there is, is very interesting of the lightness and the joy that comes with confessed sin and the heaviness and oppression that comes with unconfessed sin. And I'm really sure that much of the problem that we see in our society today, which results in what is called depression and various other emotional and even physical problems, has to do with the burden of sin that rests on the hearts and souls of so many people. Ashdod and all of its villages, the towns neighboring it that were related to the city of Ashdod itself, were ravaged or made desolate by God. And the physical manifestation, now this is going to be the real, one of the interesting aspects of this whole passage. The physical manifestation of this ravaging was the appearance of tumors. The Hebrew word here is ophel, which at its root means swelling, a swelling, these swellings that were appearing on the bodies uh, of these people. And of course, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that outside of the old city, there is a, there's a swelling, a kind of a hill that drops down from the old city into the, uh, the valley of Silwan to the south of the city. And, you know, Ophel, it's called the Ophel, the swelling. And, and that's where actually David had established his city first before the later city was, was developed. These were not just disfiguring or uncomfortable or unsightly tumors or swellings. We are told in this passage they were deadly tumors. Hence, we have this concept of the ravaging or the making desolate of the land because people were dying by the thousands, certainly by the hundreds and probably by the thousands. As we shall see, these tumors were apparently the product of a plague that God sent upon the land, and very possibly a plague that we are somewhat familiar with through history, known as the bubonic plague. But I'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the next chapter in the fourth verse because of some things that are said there which make it even more likely that we're talking about an incident of the bubonic plague. The Ashdodites were being destroyed. They were dying. And they were beginning to recognize that this may have something to do with the Ark of God. Because before the ark came, everything was just fine, thank you. We were just moving along. Life was going along pretty normal. Yeah, this person had a cold. That person was sick, you know. But all of a sudden, the ark comes and the god falls down and breaks in half. And, and then all of this physical tragedy breaks out. And it's interesting that it says in the passage that they acknowledged that this was probably the result of the hand of God. And they said that the hand of God was heavy on them and on their god, Dagon. You know, it's very interesting. These people were so steeped in paganism and so blinded by Satan that they didn't even think of what to us would be so obvious. Well, if the God of Israel 
is rendered your God useless and meaningless and powerless, who should you be worshiping? Worship the God of Israel. Don't worship this meaningless statue with broken hands and broken head. What, what's the point? If, if the God of Israel is oppressing your God, who's stronger? Why don't you turn to the God of Israel? But I think what we have to understand is these people were steeped in paganism. They had never known anything else all of their lives for hundreds of years of history and thousands of years in history for that part of the world. And they conceived of gods as being territorial, tribal. You have your God, we have our God, they have their God, and every once in a while have a war and we demonstrate who's God stronger, but hey, you don't switch gods. This is your God. This is, the, I, I think I emphasized this last time, it's, it's sort of like in Japan. Japanese grew up understanding Shinto as not only their religion, but the very essence, the core of their culture and their being. And, and they couldn't even conceive of changing religions because that's like changing your culture, changing who you are, tearing you apart. And I think many of the Philistines viewed it this way and they couldn't conceive of forsaking Dagon for Yahweh, even though obviously Yahweh was considerably more powerful than Dagon. And part of the problem, of course, with Yahweh was there was no statue, no image. Dagon, they could walk in the temple and there's Dagon. But you walk into the temple of Israel and, and there's no God around. <laughs> You can't see him. And of course, Satan was constantly saying, if you can't see him, he's not real. That's one of the reasons why the Romans persecuted Christianity. Because Christians didn't have an image of their God to show. Well, where's your God? If you really are, have a God, show it. You don't have anyone to show, whether you're atheistic, which seems like a strange accusation to make of Christianity, being atheism. When I was reading about this this morning, this passage came to mind. I didn't get it onto the outline, but let me just read to you from Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, at verse 5, we read these words. To whom will you liken me? This is, of course, God speaking. And make me equal and compare me, that we should be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on a scale, hire a goldsmith. And he makes this gold into a god. And they bow down, and indeed they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. In our society today, most people don't have a, actually a golden image standing in the corner where they bow down and burn incense. But we have just as idol-worshiping a society as there's ever been in history. You know, people worship their 5,000 shares in Microsoft, or maybe they're not worshiping that so much anymore, but, you know, in, in whatever uh, company it might be, or they're worshiping whatever it might be, you know, their, their Sunday football, or, you know, all kinds of things that uh, people worship. And they, they, they can't even understand that, that this is no God. It, it provides no help. Uh, you cannot cry unto your, under the stock market and ask you to, you know, it to help you. you know, only God can deliver. It seems so obvious to us whose eyes have been opened, but it's so unobvious to those whose eyes are still blind. And I guess that's part of our job here as believers is to pray for the blinders off the eyes of the blind and to be reflectors of the glory of God into a dark world. Well, the leaders of Ashdod panicked. 
And they called an emergency meeting of all the lords of Philistia. They were pretty sure that the ark of God probably was their source of trouble. But they were afraid at Ashdod to take unilateral action. They needed everybody to agree together what to do. After all, this was a great victory, a great trophy, a great symbol that they had captured. You know, just toss it away or send it back on your own. But uh, they got together and they talked amongst themselves and they said, well, what shall we do with the ark? And they all agreed together, well, send it on to Gath. Send it on to Gath. Why? Why would they make that decision? Well, I think one reason they might have make that, made that decision was they weren't absolutely certain. And, and we'll see that as we go on here, there are some statements that are made, particularly in the next chapter, that indicates they weren't absolutely certain that the ark was the source of all their trouble. Maybe it's purely coincidental. Secondly, they thought possibly at Gath, Dagon will be stronger. Possibly at Gath, Yahweh will be weaker. You see, that's how they could view their God. Their God was not universal. Their God was local. Maybe their God was stronger at Gath than he was in Ashdod. Maybe Yahweh would somehow be less strong in Gath than he was in Ashdod. Or thirdly, I think partly they simply were not ready yet to give up on the possibility that Dagon might yet win. Somehow Dagon's going to get his act together and get rid of Yahweh. Maybe. So let's don't give up yet. This could still happen. Or fourthly, I just threw this in, uh, maybe they like to play Russian roulette. I don't know. Maybe they didn't see how dangerous this really was. Gath was located about 12 miles east of Ashdod, right on the edge of the Philistine plain and the Shephelah where, where Israel was still in control. So it was, a, it was near the border between Philistia and Israel. I, I think it's very, most, it's very likely that after hearing what had happened to Ashdod, that the people of Gath weren't exactly thrilled to discover that the Ark of the Covenant was being moved to their city. I'm sure that there were a few people who thought that the nobles had gone nuts and uh, were just trying to uh, you know, pass the trouble around a little bit, you know, spread the burden. I, I think some must have certainly expected that if disaster broke out in Ashdod, disaster is, li disaster is likely also to break out in Gath. And lo and behold, it didn't take long before devastation was re repeated. The scripture tells us, as we read there this morning, that the devastation brought by the hand of God created great confusion. The Hebrew word literally means panic, tumult. People just didn't know what to do next. They were totally at, to use an English phrase, sixes and sevens about this whole thing. The plague broke out in Gath and struck the young and the old alike. It didn't matter if you were young and strong, you could catch the plague as much as if you were old and weak. Well, the people of Gath didn't wait to call another council. After all, you have to think about this. Think of the lo logistics of all of this. Uh, you call a council. A messenger has to go all the way down to Gaza and to the other four cities. Well, not to Gath, they're already there, but to the other three cities. 
And then the messenger has to give the message. And then the people have to decide, okay, our, our Lord's going to go back there. And then the Lords have to go in procession all the way to Gath in order for, I mean, we're talking about days and days here being used. In the meantime, people are dying. The confusion is increasing. The tragedy is spreading. And so the people of Gath didn't wait to call another council. They simply shipped the ark on. <laughs> we're playing musical ark here. So let's move the ark on. We've had our share, ship it on to Ekron. About five miles north of Gath was Ekron. Ekron was the point city. It was the furthest north and the furthest east of the uh, Philistine cities, closest to the border of Israel. And that plays a significant role here in the events that we read about in the sixth chapter. Well, as would be expected, I think, the people of Ekron were terrified. There's then in the ark here. And they accuse the leaders of Gath of desiring, purposely desiring to destroy them. You're sending it on because you want to destroy us just like you have been destroyed. Thanks a lot. I don't think they said thanks a lot, however. The governors of Ekron didn't waste time. They immediately called for another council of all the lords of the Philistines. Emergency meeting in Ekron right now. Get it together. We've got to talk about what to do. How are we going to handle this problem? There's got to be a better solution than just shipping the ark around from city to city and seeing its destruction spread. There's got to be a better way. So they wisely came to the conclusion that their only choice was to send the ark back to Israel. Think about that. How humiliating is that? They've won a great victory. They've captured the trophy of Israel. They've got it in their borders, and it's wreaking such devastation they've got to send it back. Humbly send it back like a bunch of cowering dogs send it back That was almost more than they could stand but they knew that if they didn't the nation would be wiped out You know some people are wiser than others you look down through the pages of history and you will find there have been leaders Who were so foolish and so committed that they would see their nation destroyed before they would humble themselves case in point of course Adolf Hitler verse 12 contains another piece of evidence which at least in part is consistent with the concept of the bubonic plague. From that verse we understand that some were smitten with tumors but did not die. Not everyone who, who, who broke out in these tumors died. Now studies have been made of the bubonic plague and our doctors could tell us a lot more about this I'm sure. But beginning in the 14th century, when the bubonic plague ravaged Europe, I don't know if you've studied that, but the middle of the 14th century was one of the most tragic periods in the history of Europe. The plague was brought from the Sea of Azov, way up just north of the Black Sea, by ship, and it came down and was brought into Italy because the rats, as you know, uh, whenever a ship came into port, the rats jumped ship. And the rats were the carriers of the, um, of the uh, flea that carried the, the plague bacterium and the plague spread and you can look at a map and you, you can just see the plague advanced across Europe month by month it just advanced northward and in six years it went from southern Italy to Scandinavia in the process of that six years it took one-third of the population of Europe well studies have been made of that and subsequent examples of the bubonic plague and they have discovered that the flea-borne variety the variety of the bubonic plague, which is uh, transmitted by the bite of the flea, is 60 to 70 percent lethal, meaning 30 to 40 percent of those who actually are infected survive it. 
and, and live through it. And therefore, of course, when it comes the next time, they're home free because they've been inoculated, you might say. And so here we discover some people who broke out with these, quote, tumors, these swellings, did not die. And so that, again, seems to fit the pattern of the bubonic plague. We're told in this passage that the cry of the people of Ekron went up to heaven. This doesn't mean, of course, that God heard them and said, oh, poor people, I'm going to save them. No. It basically means that the leaders of Ekron knew they better get something done here or they're going to have massive revolt on their hands and they needed to act immediately. What both the Israelites were learning and now the Philistines were learning was that the God of Israel was sovereign and that he would not be manipulated and that he would not be resisted. Read um, from the 83rd Psalm related to this. 80, Psalm 83, verse 13. O oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with thy tempest, and terrify them with thy storm. Fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that thou alone, whose name is the Lord, Yahweh, art the Most High over all the earth. Here the psalmist is calling upon God to do similarly to what he was doing here at Ekron and the other Philistine cities in order to demonstrate that he alone is the Most High God and there is no other God. If we look at the next passage, now the sixth chapter of 1 Samuel, I'd like to read the first half of the chapter. Now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return to him a guilt offering. Then you shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? And they said, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods, and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when they had severely dealt with, when he had severely dealt with them did they not allow the people to go, and they departed? Now therefore take and prepare a new cart and two milk, milk, milch cows on which there has never been a yoke, and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you have returned to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side. Then send it away that it may go and watch 
if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. I think it's part of the foible of human nature that about foolish things, we're quickly convinced that we ought to do them. About wise things, it takes a lot, a lot, a lot of input before we decide to do them. It's like Gideon, you know, fleece, fleece, more fleece. <laughs> another test, another test. I don't know how much it was going to take for the Philistines to understand that the Ark of the Covenant, the God of Israel, is the cause of their problem. Because they didn't have any problems before they got the Ark. And everywhere it went, the ark, the trouble followed. Duh. <laughs> it's interesting to note how long it really took the Philistines to react to this calamity. The very first day they got the ark, their God fell on his face. The second day, their God fell on his face and his head and his hands broke off. And every day after that, things got worse. Hundreds, probably thousands were contracting these tumors, and a great number of them were dying. It was devastating the land. Why in the world did they suffer through seven long months of this without seeking deliverance? Well, I think part of the answer, at least, was in the fact that they had this perennial hope that Dagon would finally prevail, that somehow Dagon would come back from wherever he was and figure out the problem and solve it for them. You see, each nation was firmly convinced in the power of his God. We have to remember that these gods were empowered by the forces of hell themselves. As Paul tells us, every idol has a demon behind it. And so these idols actually did have power. They, they, they weren't just dead things that did nothing, even though from God's point of view, they, they were dead things that did nothing. But from the human point of view, it seemed like they had power. And Dagon had been their god for as long as they could remember. And so they still had hope in him. I think also, though, that the answer was, at least in part, that they weren't absolutely sure that the ark was the real cause of their trouble. Maybe something else. Maybe it's just happenstance. And the ark isn't really... They didn't want to give up this trophy if they could avoid it. To the good point of the Philistines, we, we discovered they did not mishandle the ark. There's no statement that they opened it or looked into it or, or did anything else, which is really interesting given the fact that as soon as it gets back to Israel, that's exactly what the Israelites do. What do we got here? <laughs> so finally, they turned to their priests and their diviners, the people who were committed to the worship of Dagon and the other gods of the Philistines, whose job depended on the success of Dagon, and therefore, they obviously had a, um, a conflict of interest here, you might say. They weren't exactly independent observers. And, and they turned to the priests and they said to the priests, what are we going to do with the Ark of Yahweh? With what shall we send it back? They were kind of convinced now, <laughs> we probably should get it out of our country here. That might be good, but we probably shouldn't just send it back empty. The priests of Dagon. It's very interesting when you read through the Old Testament and you read about what sometimes pagan priests say and do. And sometimes what they say and do seems quite wise. <laughs> and you wonder, is that because they just accidentally guessed the right thing to do, or did God sort of guide them in this? Well, there are numerous places in Scripture where we discover statements that God directed the lives of a pagan person to do certain things, even though that person didn't know God. 
So the priests of Dagon acknowledged that they should probably send the ark back to Israel as much as they wanted to keep it, as much as they wanted it to be there as a trophy of the victory of their God, they knew they had to get rid of it. But they said, only if it is accompanied by a guilt offering. Ooh, where did you get such a bright idea? Send it along with a guilt offering. Now, we, we have to understand, of course, that these pagan priests had not read Leviticus. So they did not have any idea of what a guilt offering was in Israel. And of course, in Israel, in the fifth chapter of Leviticus, we read that uh, the primary use of the guilt offering was when one had committed an unintentional sin. The scripture says, unintentional or not, you're still guilty, and an offering needs to be made. But they knew that you never went before a god to ask something of him without bringing a gift. You brought a sacrifice. You brought an offering. You admitted your need of the God's help, and you, you uh, <laughs> patted his purse uh, along the way. Especially if you have robbed a God, which, of course, the Philistines were guilty of stealing the ark that belonged to Israel. So you better make it a good guilt offering if you're going to send the ark back. Now, the last sentence of verse 3 says, then you shall be healed. If, if you do this, then you shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. How did they know that? Is that a true statement? Did God give these priests insight to know that if they did this, that he would lift the, the burden off of their country, that he, he would take away the plague from their land, and they would then know why the plague had been on their land? Well. I think that's very, very possible. The logical question is asked in verse 4. If we must send Yahweh a guilt offering, what should that offering be? What should that offering be? You know, think about this now. These are pagans. They know what offerings to bring to their God, but what offering do you bring to this very powerful God that we have offended? What, what do we do? Some of them probably thought, well, we're going to have to sacrifice our children or something like that because that's what they did in their society to worship their God. The priests responded, and this is very interesting, that they should send five golden replicas of the tumors and five golden replicas of mice. Mice. Each replica of tumor and mice was to represent one of the lords, one of the five great cities of the Philistine pentapolis. And that would represent the, whole, the totality of the country in so doing. Because we read in the passage at the end of verse 4 that for one plague was on you all. The same symptoms occurred all over the land whether Gath or Ekron or Ashdod, and by implication, the other cities, even though the ark didn't go there, at least there's no statement that it did, the other cities must have suffered too. The implication is that the symptoms are the same everywhere. The symptoms are the same in each town, in each village. And we must understand that the Hebrew word for mouse or mice is, is generic enough to include rats, to include small rodents, other than just what we know as a field mouse. So, you all know, certainly, that the great bubonic plague that struck Europe, at least in the 14th century, was transmitted. The main carriers were rats. And these rats had the fleas on board. And these fleas, of course, <laughs> I just love the way 
Hollywood presents life in the Middle Ages, uh, generally speaking, especially amongst the nobles. Dressed so finely, living in their great castles and palaces, and such a wonderful life, and that's all baloney. Because those castles were cold and damp and dark, and they were infested, and everybody scratched from the king on down because they had lice and bed bugs and fleas. They, they slept in furs often, and you know, they, had, they didn't wash frequently their, their cells or anything else. And as a result, you, you were just constantly being bitten by, by these creatures all the time. And so obviously, if fleas are carrying the bacteria of the plague, you're going to be exposed to it. You and I, for example, if we go to a place where, where the vector for the disease is mosquitoes, you can put mosquito nets around and use citronella or whatever else and help to fight off the mosquitoes. But if you live in a flea, bed bug, louse-infested environment and it's everywhere, you, you can't escape it. You just can't escape it. King going like this and the queen going like this, you know, and <laughs> which has been reality. The bubonic plague is called bubonic because of what are known as the bubils, the, the great swellings that occurred in the armpits, the groin, and in the neck, and the latter stages of it, you turn an ashen gray in the latter stage before you die. That's why they call it the black death. And as you look at this, you see mice, tumors, not everybody dies, but most die. It, it just really begins to add up to an outbreak of the bubonic plague. If so, and I'm not saying it is, but if so, this is the very first written record that links the plague to rodents. There's no record before this or even long time after this that links the plague to rodents because down through most of history, people did not understand that disease was carried usually by human contact necessarily or animal contact. They just thought it was in the air, kind of humors and vapors out there. And, going around transferring uh, disease. Of course, it's possible this is not the bubonic plague and that the mice and the tumors are, un are unrelated. It could be that there was a tumor causing disease and that there was a plague of mice simultaneous and that there was no relationship. Um, that's a possibility. E either way is possible. But uh, all the evidence seems to at least lean in uh, that direction. Whatever the case, the priests advised the Philistine nobles to send the golden replicas of the tumors and mice as a way of giving glory to the God of Israel because they were sending these things and they were saying, it is you we know who is sovereign, at least at this moment in time, and to acknowledge his supremacy and his overlordship. It was a common pagan practice to bring as a gift to the God a replica of whatever the petitioner was asking the God for or a replica of whatever the God has answered prayer for, particularly if it was healing. It was very common. If, for example, somebody was wounded in the leg and they went to the God and they got well, that they would bring a small replica of the leg in, usually of something metal that was of value and give it as a gift to the God. So this was what they thought all, this was their thinking. So a replica of tumors, replica of mice seemed like the logical thing for them. It's a pagan thought, but nevertheless, it was the only one they had and the only thing they could think to do. It's interesting, though, as you read this passage, that the priests of the Philistines remembered the stories of Israel from 300 years before, probably better than most of Israel did. That Yahweh had sent severe plagues on Egypt 
and, and had devastated Egypt. Why? Because Pharaoh had hardened his heart and wouldn't let Israel go. And so the priests say to the Lord, to the Philistines, don't harden your heart like Pharaoh or you will have destruction as Israel experience, as, as Egypt experienced destruction. Don't repeat the folly of Pharaoh. Isn't that great advice from a pagan priest? <laughs> Interesting how the word has gotten around. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it seems like all the neighbors of Israel had heard the story of, and, and that's before internet or telephone or television, you know, oh, well, live witness here on the shores of the Red Sea, uh, the bodies of all these army, all these soldiers floating around. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it was, it was spread. And I, I think the, the real root behind that is the fact that we're, we're talking about spiritual warfare at, at, at the foundation of all of this, spiritual warfare. And God is, of course, in this particular instance, demonstrating his power and his glory. Well, we'll look beginning next Sunday at what they did to, to satisfy the God of Israel and to rid themselves of this problem.